5 for 11, which is not right. It's Colossians 3, 5 for 11. Hopefully I didn't, I didn't put another typo somewhere else in my, in my uh, passage. It's right. It's... Yeah. Yeah. Old Dean, man. Dean, what are you doing up there, buddy? Hannah, you can change that real quick if you want and make a quick edit. I, you know, it just feels bad. The old Dean man. He ain't what he used to be. Uh, so, <laughs> that's pretty funny. So, all right. It changed. All right, good job. Hannah, see? Look at that. On the spot, just making those changes. Very good. So, the last two sermons uh, from Colossians have been in chapter 3. And recall that chapter 3 transitions from the discussion and the description of the Colossian heresy that was in chapter 2. And the Apostle Paul ended chapter 2 with a final indictment of that false teaching. And he did it by this. He, he told his readers that the teachings may have the appearance of wisdom. This is at the very end of chapter 2. That those false teachings may have the appearance of wisdom, but that it was a man-made religion, a false humility, unnecessarily harsh to the body. And ultimately, the big indictment against the false teaching was that it was of no value, no use in overcoming the flesh. And that's in verse 23 of chapter 2. So in the beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, Paul is communicating to the church in Colossae that they need to understand more of the magnitude of what they had received from God when they became united with Christ by becoming Christians. What they had as believers in Christ was a real and useful means of overcoming the fleshly indulgence that used to, and in some cases, still plagued them. Because of what Christ had done for them, uh, because of what he had done for them in raising them up to a, a new life, a resurrected life, they had the power through him to set their minds on the things that were above, where their new home was, where their new destiny was, in the very presence of Christ. And they had this new ability to be overcomers in this present life, not just in the life to come. And recall that I told you when we, got, when we first got into chapter 3, that all of the sermons on this chapter would be entitled, The Glorious Death of Sin, right? It was supposed to be part one, part two, part three, and part four. Part one was verses one to four. It was the new life, new home, and new mind. Part two was supposed to be the old dead man, verses five through 11. It was meant to be a single sermon, but I had to break it up. So it was 2A last time. This time it's 2B, where we're at today. Part three, when we get there, is going to be in verses 12 to 17, and it's on the risen new man. And part four, which will be verses 18 to chapter one, verse four, or chapter one, verse one, I'm sorry, chapter four, verse one. Typos, uh, spoken. That's going to be on the new relational paradigm that we have in Jesus. So last time we were together, I told you that though Paul doesn't use the word, here, he's talking about sanctification in this chapter. And sanctification, if you recall, we talked about is that process in which God transforms our lives and he grows us and he matures us so that we become more holy in this life. And I mentioned that that sanctification, as it's described here in, in Colossians, is like a two-sided coin. And in that it has two opposite aspects that describe it. Sanctification on one side of the coin involves things that are dying in our lives. And on the flip side, 
there are new things coming to life in us who are Christians. The first side of that coin is the old dead man. The second side of that coin is the risen new man. And this next section of verses 5 through 11, we just got through verse 7 last time, Paul gets into those things associated with the old dead self that must be killed. Those are fleshly habits that may still linger and tempt us. Even though the old self has already died with Christ, these, these things that Paul is urging the Colossians, and by extension us today, to get rid of these things. Get rid of them. Kill them. So like I said, we made it through verse 7 last time, and we discussed the first five in this list. There was a list of five sensual sins in verse 5. And today we pick up in verse 8 and we go through verse 11. So our path forward for the sermon today, for all of you note takers, it's pretty simple. Um, It is simply this. We're going to finish the next category of sins that are listed in the text in verses 8 and 9. These sins that need to be put to death. And then we're going to begin to flip that coin to the other side of sanctification and start talking about renewal. So, with that said, let me read the text and we will pray. Starting in verse 5. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you, once, you also once walked when you were living in them. Now starting in verse 8. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. But Christ is all and in all. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I come before you this morning needing you, needing your spirit's power to speak your truth to these brothers and sisters and to these who have come to hear your word today. I pray, Lord God, that your word would do a transformative, sanctifying work in our hearts today. Lord Jesus, I pray um, for blessing on our time together. I pray, God, that we would be convicted where we ought and encouraged where we ought. And I pray, God, above all, that we would grow to love you more deeply as we sang this morning, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So in verse 8, Paul gives us the next set of five sins, which we'll call the social sins, right? The first were the sensual sins in verse 5, and these are the social sins. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech. Paul says they need to put them all aside. The word here is the same word used in Acts. Chapter 7, verse 58, at the stoning of Stephen when those who were in attendance took up rocks to throw, it says in the, in the text that they laid aside their robes at the feet of Saul. That's what this phrase, put them all aside, is translated from. It's the same thing. It refers to the removal of a garment. A garment being that which covers and adorns the body. So, I have an object lesson for you guys this morning. 
have an old garment. So, <laughs> this is what I wore last year when I went swimming. And it doesn't fit me any longer. And just as a quick public service announcement, you'll notice there are pineapples on it, right? Does anybody see the pineapples on it? Now, you may not know this, but if you wear pineapples on your clothes, you may unwittingly be sending a signal to certain people. Are you aware of this, or is this totally news to you? Yes. You should know this. We should expose the deeds of darkness, right? Ephesians 5, we need to expose... If you wear pineapples, you may be unwittingly communicating to people, certain people, that you are a swinger. This is absolutely true. It's absolutely true. So, that's not what I'm doing by holding up these pineapples today. That's not at all what I'm doing. Just so you know, you should know that. So if someone comes up to you and says, oh, I like the pineapples on your shirt or whatever, just say, "Uh, I like pineapples too, you pervert. Don't pervert the pineapples. Um... You've already perverted the flag. Stop perverting the pineapples. Yes, yes. So, last year when I went swimming, though, I wore those things. Um, they're huge on me now, right? They're, they're just huge. They don't fit anymore. If I put these on, I have to tie them very, very tight around my waist, and they're so bunchy that they look ridiculous if I put them on. Um, I don't wear them anymore. I'm throwing them away or donating them to someone because... I want them to... Anyway, no, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. In other words, I'm getting rid of these things, right? I'm getting rid of these old clothes. One of the fun things I've been doing a lot lately is getting rid of old clothes that are in my drawers and, and closets and, uh, because they're way too big on me now. And I love doing this. It's fun. Uh, it's fun to go shopping and get new clothes that fit me better. Um, but my closet still has a bunch of old garments that I need to stop wearing because I just look silly if I'm wearing them. And uh, for a while there, I hesitated to get rid of some of those old clothes, thinking that I may need them again in the future, right? If I keep visit, start visiting buffets again, I may need them in the future. So, but I don't feel that way now. I, I, I don't want to leave a bridge in my closet back to my old eating and lifestyle habits. So I'm in the process of discarding them and replacing them. Some of the things I still, some of those things though, I still wear them at times because my new wardrobe is not as large as my old one was. So this is similar to the imagery that Paul is using here when he talks about putting aside and putting off in these verses, right? He's comparing old attitudes and old behaviors to old garments that have become filthy and tattered and are no longer useful. He's saying, listen, Colossians, These old attitudes, these old behaviors, these old emotions, they don't fit you any longer. You have a transformed and a renewed self that's not supposed to dress like that anymore. When you wear those old clothes, you look funny. Do you see that? The clothes that they needed to put aside were these things. These were attitudinal and emotional, these first three. Anger is the first one. And it's the same word that Paul used in the Greek... Uh, back in verse 6 when he mentioned God's wrath. And though we wouldn't know it here because most English translations don't reflect that it's the exact same word, this refers to resentment or, or, or deep resentment. Anger is a very good translation for the word. James 1.19 tells us that it uses the same word here. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. 
For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. In a parallel passage, Paul says much the same thing as here in in Colossians. In verse 8, Ephesians 4.31, he says, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. The second one is wrath. And this one's related to the former one, anger. But it refers to sort of an explosive outburst that can accompany anger. Anger is that that slow boiling liquid beneath the surface that can give rise to volcanic eruptions of wrathful outbursts. In fact, the New American Standard uh, in Galatians 5.20 uses that same word and it, it translates it there as outbursts of anger. Wrath, outbursts of anger. The third one is malice. And this just refers to ill will or a desire to do harm to someone else or to injure somebody. It's a wickedness that is not ashamed to break laws. Malice. Titus 3.3 uses this word as well. And it says, We also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. So thus far, the three sinful garments that Paul has urged the Colossians to put aside in this list are attitudinal and emotional. They linger beneath the surface. Similar to verse 5 where he mentions evil desire and greed. But they eventually, these eventually germinate and exhibit sinful physical manifestations. Even though they're beneath the surface, they will eventually exhibit themselves above the surface. Last in, in the last sermon when I talked about the sin of greed or covetousness, I likened it to a tiny seed that remains after grown sinful plants are uprooted. And I indicated it's like when you finish weeding your flower bed and within a week it looks like you haven't done anything. Greed is the little invisible seed that will germinate into greater sins. So are these three inward emotional attitudinal sins. Anger, wrath, malice. They will germinate into greater outward sins. So now Paul discusses some of the physical sinful manifestations of that anger and that wrath and that malice. These things can produce, if we allow them to grow unchecked, these other things, these seeds that will germinate into things like slander. Slander refers to speaking evil against a person, injuring their good name with words, namely untrue words. When you slander someone... Someone who is angry or malicious is prone to slander, are they not? It's the same word that appears in Ephesians 4.31 and in 1 Timothy 6.4. It's the word in, in Greek, blasphemia, from which we get our word blaspheme. Translators into English have generally agreed that when this word is used in the text in relation to God, that they'll simply transliterate that word into an English word. And they create a new English word, blaspheme. That's all it is. But when they translate that word as it's used in relation to people, they generally agree that they translate it as slander. So to slander another is to blaspheme. Have you ever thought of that? I hadn't thought of that. I didn't realize it until I started digging into this text that it's the same word. To slander another is to blaspheme. So incidentally, this counts also if you're just doing this online or on social media. Um, 
if you're on Facebook or Instagram or Twitter, which is now X or uh, Discord, chatting with people in a way that you feel is anonymous, it's not. It still counts if you slander someone on those platforms. James 3, 8 to 10 tells us, no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be this way. The next one is abusive speech. It's another verbal sin following slander. It comes from wrath and anger and malice, abusive speech. It means foul language, speaking low and obscene speech. The ESV actually translates it obscene talk. The NIV translates it filthy language. The New Living translates it dirty language. The NASB calls it abusive speech because in the context, it's related to slander and it's related to these, these, uh, the other three sins. So a similar form of this word appears in Ephesians 5.4. It says there be, must be no filthiness or silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting. In Matthew 12, 35 to 37 states this. Jesus speaks and he says, The good man brings out of his good treasure what is good. And the evil man brings out of his evil treasure what is evil. But I tell you that every careless word that people speak, they shall give an accounting for it in the day of judgment. That's a frightening thought, isn't it? That someday every careless word I spoke is going to be... Have you ever had that happen where you were on recording and you didn't know you were being recorded, and then you hear what you said later on, and you're like, I don't know that I would have said the same thing after having heard myself recorded. That's what it's going to be like on that day. For by your words, Jesus said, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. Paul says to put them all aside, all of them. These were attitudes, emotions, manners of speaking that marked the old man, the dead guy that was crucified with Christ. Remember him? When you continue to wear these old garments, you don't look like who you really are. You don't look like a Christian when you continue to wear these old garments. There were those in Paul's day calling into question the validity of the gospel, that Jesus died and rose again. And that those who trust in him and follow his word would be saved and have a power over sin and death that none else had. There were those who called that into question. And there are many around us today questioning those same things. We live in an era of deconstructionism. When some prominent Christian people in a very public forum deconstruct or dismantle or demolish the claims that they made before affirming Christianity, and now they renounce it. And they argue against it. As if there's some heroes seeking to rescue those who are still trapped in a a Christian deception. Happens all the time, unfortunately. But one of the most powerful pieces of evidence that they can't adequately refute is the evidence of a transformed life. The evidence of a transformed life. When a person who used to talk like this exposing angry, wrathful, and malicious thoughts, when someone like that changes, that's a big deal. When a person who used to be perverse and engaged in all manner of sexual sins, when when they change, it turns heads. And people start to ask, 
what happened to them? What changed in their life? It's like when a person who usually dresses super casual, uh, almost to the point of being sloppy, when they get all dressed up with their hair fixed nice, people will see them and they say, wow, where are you going? Must be someplace fancy. Well, for a Christian, yes, in fact, it is a fancy place, right? We're going to heaven and I'm dressing that way. This is the point that Paul's trying to make. When we put aside all of the garments of the old self and put on the new garments of righteousness, it's the same effect. People notice, and it's a powerful testimonial evidence to the truth and the power of the gospel, the transformed life. But sadly, some of us don't want that kind of attention. You ever feel that way? I don't know that I want that kind of attention. We prefer to blend in and not stand out. So we keep some of those old garments in our closets. And when we're around certain people or in certain places, we put those garments back on, don't we? If this is true of you, though, have you really changed inside? Jesus wants us to stand out. Do you understand that? Jesus wants us to stand out. He wants us to show forth His glory and goodness by exhibiting the changed life that we have. He's the one that wrought it in us, and He wants the glory for it. Matthew 5.16 says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. He's not saying be showy or show off. He's just saying don't hide it. Don't hide the change. You have been changed. Let it be seen. I brought about this change in you. Let it be seen. Let it be seen for my glory, not for your own. I think of this. Why would we linger in those grubby old clothes that don't fit us anymore? A few weeks back, we came back from the mission trip. And I think about the missions trip every year. One of my favorite times of day um, is when we get to shower and change clothes after the work day. Because we get so hot and sweaty and dirty. Me, sweatier than most, just because I've got overactive sweat glands or something like that. So... Though, why would I want to linger in those old sweaty, smelly, dirty clothes when I can get cleaned up and change clothes? Why would I do that? Paul throws in, though, one more. Let's move on into verse 9. He throws in one more sinful practice that they also must put aside, and it's here. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self and its evil practices. A community cannot stand united if the members of that community are not honest with one another. Lies will divide and ruin a fellowship of believers. When Christians engage in lying, they're not acting as the transformed, renewed creatures that they have become. They're behaving as their adversary behaves. The devil, Satan, who's called the father of lies in John 8, 44. The adversary comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And his main tactic is deception. Why would we go along with deception and be dishonest with one another? The Christian community, therefore, must be a community of truth and truthfulness. Truth builds. Lies destroy. Truth strengthens. Deception weakens. We must stop telling lies, as it says. So was there a particular problem in Colossae uh, with the members of the church lying to one another or being deceptive in some 
other way, perhaps a nonverbal way, uh, being deceptive with one another. We don't know for sure. And we certainly don't know what it was that some may have been lying about because the text doesn't really tell us specifically. But the fact that Paul mentions it may be telling. It could have been a problem there. Was this church having a problem being honest with one another? If we look at the context of the previous verbal slander and abusive speech that is mentioned, and then we skip ahead and we look at verse 11, we can see that Colossae likely had a very diverse ethnic, religious, cultural, education, and economic background pool among its, its followers, among its adherents and congregants. We can tell this because of all of the distinctions that are mentioned, all the different groups that are mentioned in verse 11. You've got Greek and Jew. You've got circumcised and uncircumcised. You've got barbarian. You've got Scythian. You've got slave. You've got free. And if this listing reflects the makeup of that fellowship, which I believe is likely and reasonable to assume that, if that's the case, then there had to be myriad of interpersonal and relational conflicts that the fellowship had to navigate through. Those sorts of external distinctions often prompt those kind of divisions and conflicts. You can envision members of one group slandering or making coarse jokes about members of another group and then lying about having done so when those hurtful words were later exposed. This is just one of many possibilities of things that could have prompted Paul to write this final command to stop lying to one another. And I think we'll get into this in a little, just a little bit more as we progress But for now, let's just move on to verse 10, which is the next section of the sermon. So we've finished the section on the social sins and the death side of the sanctification coin. So now Paul moves on to the flip side of that sanctification sanctification coin, the, the risen or the renewed man that the believers had become. So he says in verse 10, and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. So Paul is still employing the garments imagery in this verse. Believers have a new self that they have put on. This new self is their true identity. And this putting on of the new self happened when they were saved. The behaviors and the deeds that they engaged in are the garments or the adornments that are supposed to go along with or fit with this new identity. And in verse 12, Paul begins to specify some of those new garments. What are those new garments that need to be put on? We'll get there in a future sermon, not today. But I want to be very clear here. What Paul is describing here in verses 9 and 10 is a replacement of identities. It's not some addition of a new identity to an old self. You read again through all that Paul has said in the context here in Colossians, and then go and read Romans 6, and then go and read Ephesians 4, and it's clear. The old inner man is crucified and dead. He's gone. The new inner man replaces the old man. It's not an addition. It's a replacement. It's not as if the two coexist once we become Christian. Sometimes we can talk like that, like the old man's still around. He's dead. He's dead if we're to believe Paul. The new self, according to verse 10, is engaged in a process of change, which is clear from the way that Paul says that it is being renewed. 
In other words, there's a progressive, and don't hear liberalism there. There's a progressive sense in the way that Christians change. We make progress in this life. There is an immediate positional and identity change that occurs at salvation when we first are saved. But there's this ongoing process of change that's occurring as well. And it never stops. The verb being renewed is a present tense, passive voice. In other words, it's ongoing. It doesn't give us a stopping point. It's like when we pay a bill online and say, how frequently do you want to do this? And when should I stop? You don't put a stopping point in. You got to pay the bill every month. No, similar to that. This is ongoing. This process of change is ongoing. God is in the process of changing us, renewing us. So, and it's happening to the believer and it's initiated by someone else, which is why it's in a passive voice. God is in the process of doing this changing and renewing us. And this is critical for us to understand. We have been made a completely new person in Christ, but it takes the rest of our lives to completely reorient ourselves to this heavenward path that we're on. Spiritual growth is a lifelong process, but the process is a progressing one. We make progress. We're not the same person we, are, we were when we first got saved. We've grown. We've matured. We know that Paul says in Philippians that God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. It's ongoing. It doesn't stop. And God's doing it. Isn't that encouraging? That God's doing it? We partner with Him, but He's doing it. He saved us, He sanctifies us, and He will glorify us. Praise God. So, why then is there an ongoing struggle with sin after becoming a Christian? It's not because the old man is still alive inside of us. It's that we still have the flesh to contend with, this outer man that's mentioned. The outer man will continue to decay and age as long as we're alive on this earth. The reverse is true of the inner man. It progressively transforms into something greater. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, We all with unveiled faces, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Romans 7.14-25 to discusses this very question of ongoing struggle with sin after salvation. And Paul in that passage makes it very clear that his inner man, he refers to it as I in that passage, actually loves and agrees with what is good. It loves and agrees with God's law, but that his fleshly members are bent toward sin. And this body of death that he mentions in Romans 7.24 is the same as the outer man that is decaying from 2 Corinthians 4.16. The process of sanctification is the bringing into submission to the renewed inner man, that flesh that we still contend with. That's what sanctification is. We bring our flesh into submission with this renewed inner man that exists right now. It's the ongoing putting off of sinful behaviors, desires, emotions, and attitudes. And putting on Christ-like behaviors, desires, emotions, and attitudes. 
Does that make sense? All right. So this renewal of the inner man is to something. In verse 10, it says it's to a true knowledge. So again, just as I have repeated again and again in the last two sermons, the front line of the battlefield against sin takes place in the mind. Okay? The way we defeat sin, the way we put off the old deeds and put on the new deeds to match our new identities is through growing in knowledge. Does that make sense? It's through growing in knowledge. There's no growth in the Christian life apart from a growth in knowledge. From a growing, maturing knowledge flows holy living. Let me repeat that. From a growing, maturing knowledge flows holy living. Ephesians 4, 20 to 24 says, You did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard Him and have been taught in Him just as truth is in Jesus that in reference to your former manner of life, you laid aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. Renewed in the spirit of your mind. Romans 12, 2, I've repeated this one over and over again because it goes right along with this. Don't be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. And we know that the source of this knowledge that we need to grow in that transforms us is the word of God. How much of your attention does God's word occupy? How much of God's word are you ingesting? John MacArthur draws a great, par- a great little illustration here, and he, he refers to God's Word as, as the food that provides fuel for our growth and strengthening. If we're not consuming the good food of God's Word, we're not going to find victory over sin. There's a great quote. I can't even remember who it's from. Um, it might be Moody, Dwight L. Moody. I could be wrong. But talking about the Bible, he says, this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And that's very true. When I have stumbled and fallen into a sin that I thought I'd overcome, the last thing I want to do is go to God's Word. The first thing I need to do is go to God's Word. This book will keep you from sinning. So, we know that the source of this knowledge is the Bible. And you may say, well, if I'm already positionally complete in Christ, what's the concern? Well, a baby is also complete when they're born, aren't they? They contain all of their necessary parts and organs, but they still have the capacity to grow, and they still have the necessity to grow. And we are young in Christ, we still have the capacity to grow. And we still have the need to grow. And that need and capacity goes on our whole life. This past week on Thursday, I enrolled in Russell Fuller's Academy um, to, make, to take more Greek and Hebrew classes um, to add as a supplement to the degree I got last year. So when I completed the enrollment, Dr. Fuller emailed me a link to all of the class lectures and texts for the, the Greek class I'm going to take. And I downloaded that right away onto my computer. Every one of them. It was numerous gigabytes. Now, just because I have all of that content and it's mine doesn't mean 
that I've appropriated that knowledge yet, right? I've got to go through the steps and the process of learning that. This is the Christian life. You have all you need here. You have all you need in the spirit that indwells you, but you must engage in the appropriation of God's word in your life. You've got to take that process seriously. You've got to make it literally your number one priority in your life. Go through the steps of growth and you will grow. Go to God's word and you will grow. Your sin pushes you away from God's word. God's spirit pushes you to God's word. And when you go there, you find sin disabled. You find it weakened. Go to God's word. This is the Christian life. And the goal of that growth in knowledge is that each of us would be, it goes on to say, according to the image of the one who created him. God wants us to look more and more like Jesus. This reference to the image of the one who created him is a reference back to the book of Genesis and that account of creation where Adam is created in the image of God. Adam was created in that image, but he fell and he corrupted that image. And all of us, by virtue of our direct lineage from Adam, have a corrupted nature that we inherited from him. When we identify with Christ at our conversion, we're born again with a new lineage, right? And that lineage begins with Jesus. Jesus is called the second Adam or the last Adam. In 1 Corinthians 15, 45 to 49, it says this, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. The last Adam, Jesus, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. The first man is from the earth, earthy. It says the word earthy. I'm not making that up. The second man is from heaven. As is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. Just as we have been born, just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we will also bear the image of the heavenly. And that's coming. And it grows in us in the entire time between our salvation and Jesus' return when he glorifies us. Romans 8.29 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So Paul goes on to discuss another aspect of this renewal that the believers were to be experiencing in verse 11. So let's move on to there in verse 11. And this was a different type of renewal. It was a renewal in which there was no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and free man. Paul is drawing attention to the old distinctions that matter to the earthly, fleshly minded. And the distinctions that he points out are ethnic, Greek and Jew. Paul sometimes used the term Greek and Gentile somewhat interchangeably. This is a distinction that we're accustomed to encountering in the New Testament. We see it all the time. The divide between the Jew and the Gentile was huge. And the animosity between these two groups was great. They were always bickering and arguing with each other, it seems. And we see that evidence in all of Paul's letters. There was this distinction that people wanted to cling to between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile. There was a religious 
distinction. Circumcised and uncircumcised. Now this refers to sort of the religious aspects of Judaism versus the Gentile religious aspects, which did not include circumcision. There was a divide there. So it's kind of a furtherance of that Jew-Gentile divide. And this particular issue also appears in many of Paul's letters to the churches. And it, it was the hot button issue of the day. And it brought, up, brought about all kinds of division amongst early Christians. But then there were cultural distinctions as well. Barbarian, Scythian, he mentions here. And barbarians were basically any non-Greek speaking person in the Roman Empire. It was a term of derision referring to uneducated and uncivilized people. That's what barbarian meant. Barbaric. We still use the term in the same sort of way. Now the term Scythian though is a little different. Um, They were a, it referred to a group of people who were also considered barbarians, but they were like, in terms of degree, they were like the lowest of the low barbarians. They were like barbarian heavy, very, very barbaric. So um, the Scythians were a very violent and uncivilized people in ancient times. And they had their origin in the region just north of the Black Sea in what is modern day Ukraine. So they're mentioned in all sorts of ancient historical documents and hardly ever favorably. Just like here, Paul mentions them in such a way that you can assume, ah, it was sort of a derogatory term to call someone a Scythian. In other historical works, that agrees with this. Josephus, Tertullian, Herodotus, none of these guys treat Scythians favorably. They were the butt of jokes in ancient comedic plays because they were so uncivilized and barbaric and violent. But there was also distinctions that mattered here that Paul mentions, which were socioeconomic. He mentions the slave and free man. And the letter of Colossians, by the way, and the letter of Philemon that was delivered to Colossae, if you recall, at the same time as this letter, by the way, it gives a good deal of insight into this issue of slavery in the ancient Roman Empire. And we're not going to go into that very much here today, but in a future sermon in Colossians, it's going to be a very worthy topic of discussion. So stay tuned for that one. Um, It would seem that all of these demographics made up the early church, and very likely Paul is referring to the makeup of the Colossian church, the one he's writing this letter to. As I stated earlier, all of these ethnic and cultural and religious and socioeconomic backgrounds were all sorts of noticeable distinctions that existed in their fellowship. And these distinctions produced points of contention time and time again. The temptation of the various groups within the congregation was to erect barriers between their group and the other group. The Jews hanging out with the Jews. The Greeks hanging out with the Greeks. The Scythians formed their own little group. Scythian lives matter. SLM, I'm just kidding. Uh, But of course, I'm doing it to make a point, right? Paul is trying to make this same point here. The distinctions of the old self shouldn't matter to Christians anymore. But the reality is they continued to matter. These distinctions that were external and earthy, worldly, they still mattered. Acts 6, 1-3, we get an example of how they still mattered. Acts 6, 1-3, right before the first deacons were appointed in the book of Acts. It says, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. Because there, do you see that? Do you see these, these cultural, ethnic divisions? 
that popped up in the early in Acts because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the 12 apostles summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. So this was an incident really early in the church's history that showed that these types of distinctions still mattered to people. And the apostles' response there in the book of Acts was to not let these types of things distract from their main purpose, right? Their main purposes of prayer and God's word, teaching God's word. So what they did was appoint mature people to handle the situation fairly so that the distinctions would no longer be a point of division. This is essentially Paul's point here in Colossians. These squabbles and divisions and barriers are old clothes. They're old clothes. They need to be put off. And they will dissipate all of these old barriers, these divisions, these distinctions. They will dissipate as all in the community become renewed by their increased knowledge of Christ. And I wonder if playing on these divisions, if this could have been a tactic of the false teaching that Paul confronted in Colossians to divide the congregation by focusing on cultural and ethnic distinctions? Was it a tactic that they used, a divide and conquer tactic? We don't know. But I think about that and I think how relevant that is for the church today. Because our secular world is obsessed with DEI, and you all know what I mean. Diversity, equity, inclusion. Obsessed with it. If you work for a corporation, I'm sure you hear this all the time. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. And many, many of us unwittingly follow along with this DEI mantra, thinking that we're helping to bridge divides between ethnicities and sexes and cultures. But they're not. They're not helping bridge divides. The more companies focus on and push for diversity and inclusion and equity, the more many people feel divided. They feel excluded. They feel treated unfairly. And by the way, those in elite circles pushing this know that this will be the result because the division is the point. They seek to divide. And I'm going to give you a case in point. BLM, which I kind of made a little joke about Scythian Lives Matter, but BLM as an organization on its face claims to seek the fairer treatment of black Americans in our society. But it was founded by and is run by Marxist ideologues. And the subversive intent of Marxism or communism is to create division and to agitate those divides amongst the splintered groups for the purpose of fomenting a revolution, a violent revolution if need be. And the many in the church have gone along, right along with this manner of thinking, ignoring the insidious roots of this type of thinking, seeking to rectify ethnic, economic, and social inequities by focusing on the importance of diversity, employing racial and gender quotas on geographic community demographics for their hiring practice, whatever it might be. They walk lockstep alongside our culture that is ever dividing more widely. Now listen here. I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that diversity is not and cannot be a good thing. 
right? It can and is a beautiful thing. In one sense, Paul is saying that it is a beautiful thing when all of these different backgrounds can be united and in harmony with one another. When this happens, it's a testament to the glory and goodness of God in his ability to make peace amongst his people. But the world's means of achieving this harmony has never worked, ever. No matter what the plan has been to divide, that, that's been devised to handle these problems between these divided groups, it's only ever worked as well as a Band-Aid. Nothing has ever healed the divide. Nothing. Paul is telling the Colossians, and by extension us today, Stop focusing on these external, earthly, fleshly differences. They don't matter. You hear that? They don't matter. Your renewed existence is a part of a community in which there is no distinction like these anymore. Stop worrying about them. Don't focus on them. Who cares if you're Jew or Greek or barbarian or Scythian, slave or free, Asian or Hispanic, black or white. Jesus doesn't. None of that matters to him. He called all of us. He loves people from every tongue and tribe and nation as we sang this morning. Every economic status. And he treats them all the same. He loves them. He's in all of his children. And his indwelling is the only hope of glory for all of his children. The only focus of your own life and the only focus of your church leaders should be Christ. Do you hear that? The only focus for us as a church and for you in your own life that should matter is not these external distinctions, it's Jesus Christ. Just like the apostles back in Acts chapter 6, it's not right to lose focus on the word of God in prayer. Don't get distracted by an attempt to manufacture diversity and equity and inclusion by your own efforts. Focus on Jesus. Let him be your all. And he'll take care of all of those external divisions and create a peace and a unity amongst his people that you couldn't have never dreamed of. So, if you're a predominantly black church, who cares so long as your focus is on Christ? If you're a predominantly white church, who cares so long as your focus is on Christ? If you are a ethnically blended church, praise God. But who cares so long as your focus is on Christ? That's what matters. That's what matters is if your church is any of these and Christ is not their all, then you won't achieve peace and unity. Nobody will have peace and unity if they're focus is not on him and his word. And of course, if Christ is our all, then all of his people, regardless of their background, their ethnicity, all of his people will be welcomed and included regardless of any outward distinction. Unity in Christ's body, when diversity exists, is a God-glorifying thing. It was in the first century church when all of this blending began to happen And it is today when it happens still. The church served as a a revolutionary model in the Roman Empire for overcoming ethnic and class divisions. You see, back then, a slave could be treated as nothing more than property in, in the broader community. 
But in the church, in the church, he could be a respected leader and a teacher. Isn't that amazing to think of? That was staggering before Christ. That was staggering to think of until Christ came along. An uncivilized Scythian, who was the butt of jokes, could be treated, could be treated contemptibly in, in the broader society. But in the church, he would be honored and cherished. These distinctions began to melt away because of Jesus. Women may have been treated as second-class citizens and only valuable in so much as they served their men well in, in Rome. But in God's household, it was different. They were treated as mothers and sisters who were loved and valued and cherished as necessary for the health of the communities. The community of the church in ancient times was revolutionary. And it became a catalyst for change that rippled throughout all of the Roman Empire and eventually into all of Western civilization, which we enjoy, but we sadly see deteriorating all around us today. But I believe the church can display the path forward again to peace for our world, just as it did back then. But only if we stop adopting worldly devised systems of producing equity and inclusion and maintain our focus on Christ as our all in all. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, um, Lord, I'm humbled by your, your word this morning. Father, we are so easily uh, distracted with the, the tactics of the world, seeking to use um, uh, self-made religious ideas that have the appearance of wisdom, but do not ultimately have any effectiveness in overcoming the flesh and our fleshly lusts. And they have no effectiveness in overcoming the external distinctions that still plague our society today, just like they did in the book of Colossians. Lord Jesus, I pray that us as a church would focus on you, Lord Jesus, as our all in all. And Father, like the apostles in Acts chapter 6, Lord, we would not be distracted with anything other than prayer and the teaching of God's word. Lord, that those would be front and center as we place you as our all in all. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Stand, if you will, for the benediction. You have put on the new self, if you know the Lord Jesus. And that new self is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the likeness of the one who created you. And that is a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man. None of the external distinctions that we fixate on today related to ethnicity and class and socioeconomic issues and gender. None of these things ought to divide us in his church. And that will be so if Christ is your all in all. Depart in his peace. Amen.